0: podcast episode 10. Good to be with you. Thanks for coming. So I want to talk um, in this first section about climate change and hurricanes. As uh, I'm recording this, uh, Hurricane Irma just scraped the west coast of Florida uh, a day or so ago. And of course, Houston was hammered by uh, Hurricane Harvey. And we have other natural disasters going on here in the Pacific Northwest, there have been a number of forest fires. We've been blanketed with smoke for some time. And, and, um, and this excites comment. People start talking when, when there are, uh, when you have a rapid succession of nat- natural disasters, uh, people start wondering. Mankind is a, is a, what do you say, a pattern, uh, a pattern recognizing creature. So that means that when we see something, we 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 see something happen, and then it happens again. We start trying to look for causes. We 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 begin saying, "I wonder if this is that. If this is because of that." And and you can have secularists do it uh, because they're human beings, and you can have Christians do it because they are human beings. We are we are pattern recognizing beings. Now. That doesn't mean that we rec- all the patterns we recognize are true patterns. Sometimes, frequently, we recognize patterns falsely. So what, what do I mean by that? Well, in, in logic, uh, one of the classic fallacies is the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy. Uh, post hoc ergo propter hoc is, literally uh, means after this, therefore because of this. If one thing follows another thing in time then people think that it was caused by that thing. This is the fallacy committed by the rooster who thinks that the sun comes up in the morning because he crows. So the, the, the rooster crows, up comes the sun. Well, that's the post hoc fallacy. So I wrote my letter to the, uh, uh, the editor. I, I wrote my letter to the editor of the Picayune Tribune, and two days later, the president changed his policy just as I recommended. Well, that person is committing the post hoc fallacy. He thinks just because the president changed course two days after he wrote a letter to some obscure newspaper urging him to do so, that that's, that it must be that must be the reason. So, uh, at the same time, we see certain things uh, follow other things, and we have good reason to believe that they were caused by that. So you hit the you hit hit the eight ball with the cue ball, and it goes into the corner pocket. And you have good reason for thinking that the one event that preceded the other caused it, right? Well, what happens, so, so now let's move to the realm of the weather. Um, let's, we'll limit ourselves to hurricanes. But on the secular side, people are saying things like, well, we've been telling you about climate change. We've been warning you about climate change, and, and climate change is... is uh, 've we've, we've said that we're going to have a disaster disastrous hurricane season if we don't do something about climate change. And so we uh, had those warnings over a decade ago, and we had a year of hurricanes and then a 10 year hurricane drought. And then we had two in a row. Now, do we have do we have ba- a basis for saying that uh, these two hurricanes that came in a row d- during a hurricane season, These two hurricanes that came one on top of the other are the result of climate change. Well, we do have uh, a lot of discussion about climate change and a lot of people who believe in it, and we do have these hurricanes. The hurricanes are not uh, figments of anybody's imagination. They actually happened, right? But suppose someone were to say uh, Houston is the most liberal city in Texas, uh, and and this is a sign of God's judgment. This is God giving us a warning that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What you're doing is you're simply grabbing hold of something that you already think that Houston needs to change its ways. And then and so what, what happens is something that's seamlessly woven into your interpretation of that event. So uh, obviously God's trying to Tell us something so we've got a liberal city in a conservative state or a more liberal city in a conservative state and see they got hammered with a hurricane and they ought to change their ways well let's think like christians here we we don't want glib easy answers that where whatever happens you can interpret it in a way that's flattering to your position on the other hand we do want to think biblically so when jesus for example um uh talks about the the episode where the disaster happened at Siloam uh, where the the tower collapsed on certain men killing them Uh, Jesus was interacting with some of the common street wisdom which is oh man those guys were bad sinners that the tower collapsed and fell on them and so they must have been more sinful than the rest of us Uh, this is the same kind of thinking that you see with Job's comforters, Job's friends Job had a number of disastrous things happen to him and his family and his wealth. And his friends came and said, you, ha- you had to have done something wicked here. And because uh, God always acts in a way that is putting the eight ball in the corner pocket. You know, if if you have bad things happen to you, you must have done a bad thing. Uh, the same mentality and, and the whole point of the book of Job is to is to demonstrate that that's not true, that that's facile, that's too simplistic. And we have the same mentality show up with the disciples who say, uh, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. So you had this bad thing happen, he was born blind, well that must have been the result of somebody's sin. Who who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. Uh, This happened so that the glory of God might be manifested, the glory of God might be revealed. So Jesus rejects that simplistic notion. Back to the, the, back to the Tower of Siloam, it's interesting, though, that Jesus says that he, he doesn't reject what the people are doing in trying to read the meaning of the event. What he does is he corrects an erroneous reading. So they saw the tower, tower collapse, and they said, well, the men it collapsed on must have been worse sinners than everybody else. Jesus says, no. You, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what Jesus says is uh, that what the people were doing is saying this bad thing happened. And therefore those people, it, it must have happened to the people who were really bad. And, um, and um, I'm glad that God got the bad ones. I'm glad that God's aim was good. And because God's aim was good, the bad guys died. And Jesus says, no. What this uh, event was was an, uh, a demonstration that the entire city was sinful, and this was a foretaste. This was an hors d'oeuvre. Uh, God sent this destruction as an hors d'oeuvre. The collapsing tower um, was a harbinger of um, a collapsing city. Unless you repent, you're all gonna you're all gonna perish. So we do want to I I do want to say that it's possible for us to read. History. It's possible for us to see certain events and read them, read that event accurately, and not be uh, simply spe- undergoing special pleading where we're trying to um, justify our own position. So, if you said, uh, you know, for example, uh, the hurricane, Hurricane Harvey hit Houston, and this is because fifty, fifty-seven percent of the precincts that voted in the last election went the wrong way, and the, in in your you're trying to take, you're trying to evaluate the judgment of God out to the 10th decimal point. Uh, well, you, you shouldn't do that. But j- just to make up an example, suppose suppose uh, it's Gay Pride Day and there are parades, um, rainbow parades in multiple U.S. cities. And let's say in, in my example that... Out of the the ten parades in ten major cities, a meteor falls on one of the floats one of the leading floats in the parade in half of them. Half of the gay pride parade floats are or lead floats are struck by a meteor. Now, is God saying something i I would be prepared to argue that you'd have to be pretty foolish to say that he wasn't because that that kind of coincidence is so remarkable so. So out there. So make sure that when we're reading events, when you're, when, you're, when you're reading the climate, when you're reading the weather, when you're reading natural disasters or what, where the tsunami goes or how the earthquake happens or you know, all, the, all of those things, you, you do not want to buy into the secular assumption that history is meaningless and these things just happen randomly. No, history is governed by God. History is personally governed. It says in the book of Amos, Can disaster befall a city? If disaster befalls a city, have not I the Lord done it? And so uh, th- these things are personally overseen by God, and that means that they are by definition not meaningless. So we know that it's not random. We know that it's not meaningless. But the fact that we know it's not meaningless doesn't mean that we ourselves know the meaning. If we are to come into a knowledge of the meaning, it's going to have to be revealed to us either in Scripture or in some remarkable providential way. One of my favorite writers is um, P.G. Woodhouse. Now, I've, I'm going to um, uh, cover a couple things here. I'm, I'm frequently asked uh, how, how by writers or people who want to be writers, how they can work on their metaphors. How can they? How can they work on the the gift of vivid images. If they've got that gift at all, how can they hone it? How can they develop it? How can they exercise it? And the best way I know uh, to, to do this is by reading people, reading masters, people, reading people who are good at, it, good at it themselves. And I think that at, at least out of comic writers and perhaps out of all modern English writers, um, P.G. Woodhouse is the master of um, metaphor. Metaphor. There's a striking metaphor on virtually every page, so uh, the Overlook Press is is releasing some a, a nice collectible set of all of Woodhouse's uh, works, and they're they're hardback. They're nicely designed. A similar similar design for all of them, and uh, I've I've read Woodhouse for years. I've done I've done my time in Woodhouse, but I thought, oh, they're publishing the entire corpus of of Woodhouse's work. So what I'm gonna do is I'm going to buy a hardback of Woodhouse, read it, and when I'm halfway through that volume, I'll order the next one, and I'll and then when I'm halfway through that, I'll order the next one, and so on. And what I do when I'm reading is I highlight striking metaphors. If he makes me laugh or if, if something's just really striking, I, I highlight it. And then when I'm done with the book, I'll just flip through, flip through the book and then write down in my commonplace book all the striking metaphors that I want to remember or that I want to record in my commonplace book Woodhouse wrote about 90 novels wrote about 90 books and I've I'm probably through about 60 of them uh 60 plus maybe and and I've been chipping away at them now out of all these books if someone were to ask me what my favorite of them is that that's hard there's some of them that are uh joy in the morning is great um uh, Leave it to Smith is probably my favorite, the, and I I need to say that a number of the books have recurring characters and themes. So there are a number of books that have Bertie and Jeeves as their center that many people might know from um, from the from the television series Bertie and Jeeves. Uh, then there is the um, uh, Smith series, which is a smaller thing. Smith is uh, spelled the P is silent, uh, so. Uh, P.S.M.I.T.H. The P is silent, so leave it to Smith. is is the best of the Smith series, and there are the Blandings Castle series, Lord Emsworth and his his pig, uh, the Empress of Blandings, and his sister Constance and uh, uh, other um, other characters. So with Smith, all these are all light comedies. They are um, generally they involve. Um, well, what do they involve? They, they involve dim-witted young aristocratic men, sometimes enterprising young men, um, beautiful young women who have a villainous or a thuggish side or maybe a criminal side. Uh, but the crimes never uh, rise above anything uh, more serious than pinching a policeman's helmet, let's say, or uh, you know th- that, that sort of thing. So when you read Woodhouse, you're not reading him for a for a gripping insight into the human condition, this is a great. These books are great vacation reads. It's the sort of thing you take to the lake with you and 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 just plow through one. You, you they're just they're light entertainment. At the same time, there's something that's deadly serious about them, and that is that Woodhouse is is just truly gifted when it comes to metaphor. And Aristotle says that that the ability to to craft a striking metaphor is the is the mark of genius. And I think that, that uh, Woodhouse certainly was that kind of genius. He looked like a sheep with a secret sorrow. She looked up at him, her face shining like the seat of a bus driver's trousers. Things like that. Reading these books, it really ought to make your day. Leave it to Smith. Start with that. If you, if you haven't read uh, Woodhouse, start with Leave it to Smith. In our previous episode, in podcast number nine, we talked about adikia, and there were a lot of instances in the, in the New Testament for the use of this word. And so, I want to today talk about adikia as rendered iniquity. So, adikia, uh, you remember it, it, it? The previous rendering was commonly unrighteousness. Here, iniquity. When the Lord banishes evildoers from His sight, when the Lord Banishes them at the judgment. What does he do? He calls them in Luke thirteen twenty-seven, "Ye workers of iniquity, depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity." Adikia. Luke also uses the same word for the unjust steward in sixteen eight, and in the parable, and, and in the parable of the unjust judge in eighteen six. So. Iniquity seems stronger than unrighteousness, but of course it's the same word in, in the Greek and you've got a semantic range. We get a glimpse of the range of this word through biblical applications. For example, Paul sarcastically asks to be to be forgiven for the wrong of not having been a burden to the Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 13. He's of course being sarcastic, but please forgive me for the iniquity of not being a burden on you. Uh, Judas purchased his field through his agents, the the leaders, uh, to whom he returned the bri- the bribe money, with his reward of iniquity. That's what it's called in Acts uh, one eighteen. So Judas is here described as iniquitous. His iniquity was a high form of treachery. Now I I, I should say something um, on the side here, and that is uh, I I don't believe that Judas. One day woke up and said, "I'm going to do something iniquitous." You you remember that in everybody's head, everybody thinks of themselves as the hero of their own story, and it's um, and I I don't think this was uh, any different with Judas, but I think at some point in the story the the veil came off and he saw what he had done. Um, my my supposition is that you remember that Judas had seen Jesus walk on water. Judas had seen Jesus raise the dead. Judas had seen uh, Jesus feed the 5,000. Judas had cast out demons himself. He'd been sent out. Judas was in the middle of one display of astonishing power after another and he'd been in the middle of that for three years. And this person wielding this power inexplicably was not using it to throw the Romans out. He And I I believe that Judas had compromised on a a petty level, as John tells us in the Gospel of John, where it says he helped himself. uh, He was the treasurer, and he would help himself to the cash when he felt like it, when he felt he needed it. So Judas was morally compromised, which meant that he was not seeing the situation accurately. And I believe that Judas thought he 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 thought he was on top of it he thought he was going to do something remarkable he thought he was going to force jesus hand and i I believe that the judas betrayed jesus for 30 pieces of silver he thought uh, you know he'd seen jesus do remarkable things he thought he would force jesus hand by having the romans come to arrest him he would be 30 pieces of silver richer as a result and Jesus would have to finally deal with the Romans and then when Jesus responded the way Isaiah said as the sheep before his shears is dumb he, he d- didn't answer his uh, didn't answer his accusers he didn't defend himself against the Romans he just went as a lamb to the slaughter when Jud when Judas saw that he returned the money said of betrayed innocent blood and went and hanged himself so Nevertheless, even though there's a story that, that is involved, wrapped around all this, uh, the, the Bible nevertheless describes Judas's action as iniquities, as iniquitous. The apostle Peter sees right through Simon Magus and dismisses him as being in the gall of bitterness and in the chains of iniquity. There's that word again, Acts eight twenty three. 23. Uh, the sin of Simon Magus was that of trying to buy the power of bestowing the Holy Spirit. And that is iniquity. Uh, The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity, we see in James 3, 6. So the range of this word, adikia, iniquity, is pretty broad. Uh, Treason, simony, slander, and libel. Love rejoices in truth and it refuses to rejoice in iniquity. 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Love rejoices in truth and does not rejoice in iniquity. Everyone who wants to be called a Christian, naming the name of Christ, should show this desire, should manifest this desire by departing from iniquity. 2 Timothy 2 19. God in the time of the sickness, God in the doctor, too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.